My book recommendation this morning is A Doubter's Guide to Jesus by John Dixon. Um, I think the reason I like this book is as a pastor, I'm always on the prowl for books that are good to give someone who doesn't know a bunch of stuff. Um, So like, you know, if you're looking for somebody who, you know, I had a friend just this week, he said, what's a good book to tell someone to read? If they want to know about the books of the Bible, but they've never read it before and they just want to have a basic idea of what each book of the Bible is about and and how it's outlined. And, you know, I thought, well, unless you're going to buy somebody like a big, huge study Bible, I didn't have a book that came to mind. It took a lot of work and, and research. And so I'm always asking myself the question, if you have somebody who's a new Christian and wants to know about Jesus, what's a good book? This might be my favorite. Um, the book I usually put in every, try to put in anybody's hands who's a new Christian is Knowing God by J.I. Packer. But it's important to have, be pointing people to Jesus <laughs> and not God generically. Now, I know Packer doesn't do that in that book. But this is a great book to put in somebody's hands if they have no Christian background or if they don't know much about Jesus or if they're more culturally informed and they, they just never learned about Christ. Um, this, is, uh, this is a book where he deals with who Jesus is, what he is like, what the sources for Jesus' life are. It's not a defensive book. It's not like every chapter you're reading and he's, he's um, dealing with skeptical arguments necessarily. But he's writing with somebody in mind who maybe is asking questions as they're going along. They're learning something about Jesus and then they're going, wait, he did, he, he did, he did miracles? And then maybe they have trouble with miracles, so he'll have a section where he'll talk about miracles, and he'll address those things in an apologetic way. So I'm just going to send this book around. Please look at the chapter headings. Take a look. Um, I'm going to be doing an apologetics class at St. Stephen's next year with the high schoolers, and this is the this is one of the books we're going to read together with the seniors, um, and we're going to lead discussions on this book. This is one of the one of the pieces that we're going to use for the class. So I love the book. I think it's helpful. I think it's a good introduction to Christ. Here you go. A Doubter's Guide to Jesus. And it's little. It's not intimidating. Um, so the last time we, when, we, when we were last meeting, I didn't get to talk about the role of evidence. Instead, I basically gave a very simple overview of the evidence for the resurrection. And then I moved on very quickly because we had to because we were at the end of class. So I wanted to mention to you three books that you may be interested in depending on your your skill level. Uh, You are sitting there right now and you know what your skill level is in the things of of theology and nerdery. Can I use that word, nerdery? So some of you are, are brand new and you really need something that is not going to go over your head because you'll stop in the first page or two. And there are others of you who want to go as deep as, as you can. So I want to mention three books. The first one is actually a book that I read as a new believer. And this is, and all of these specifically deal with the resurrection. Um, the first book that I ever read, uh, as I was still a skeptic when I started it. And by the time I finished it, I wasn't a skeptic anymore. And you've probably read it. In fact, I want to ask for a show of hands. How many of you have read The Case for Christ? All right. How many of you uh, had to watch the movie? <laughs> I have it in my iTunes library. It's been watched once, so that's how that's how that's what I thought of the movie. 
Um, really good book in terms of you're talking about, especially if you're talking about somebody who's not been presented with historical argumentation related to the resurrection. It is a great book to get your feet in the water and to be able to hear some scholars talk about these issues. I think it's a great book for somebody who just doesn't have any experience with these things but is interested. But I want to mention two other books that if you're just looking for Give Me Everything You Got, these are the two books that I would recommend. They are gigantic and they're expensive. So if you are really in the market, um, this is the only book by this author that I'm going to probably recommend to you. Uh, It's by N.T. Wright. So just because you heard N.T. Wright doesn't mean I'm telling you to read everything from N.T. Wright. But he has a book called The Resurrection of the Son of God. And it is an excellent book. Uh, defending the resurrection. He talks about it in light of views and expectations of the ancient world. Um, He doesn't just explore the evidence that you find in the New Testament documents. He also branches out into what the non-Christian sources at the time would have also believed. Uh, It's a good book. Uh, Doesn't mean I agree with everything that he says, but if you're able to tackle a book like this, you're going to be able to tackle, uh, you're going to be able to sort through some of the trickier things in the book. So that's The Resurrection of the Son of God by N.T. Wright. By the way, I don't have a physical copy of either of these. I have them on my Kindle. So, you know, there's pluses and minuses to the Kindle. And one is you don't have anything you can hold up and wave in front of people's faces. The other book that uh, I think is really excellent on the resurrection is a book by Mike Lycona. And it's called The Resurrection of Jesus, A New Historiographical Approach. So if you can spell historiographical, you can find it on Amazon. And um, the book focuses on these three lines of argumentation. He focuses on the truth that Jesus died by resurrection, and he, ex- and he makes the most thorough arguments you can that Jesus indeed died by crucifixion. The second pillar that he bases the book on is the disciples believed they had seen him risen. And so he explores all of the evidence uh, thoroughly that the disciples believed they had seen Jesus himself actually risen after he had died. And then the third thing that he focuses on in the book is Paul. He spends a great deal of time talking about the 180 that Paul does, where initially he's a persecutor, he's actively opposed, he hates the church, and then he becomes a proclaimer instead. And his argument is the only thing that possibly could have changed such a man is actually seeing the risen Jesus. It's the only thing that could have changed him. And so he focuses on those three things. He runs through the alternative theories of the resurrection. I talked about, you know, the swoon theory, the wrong tomb theory. He goes through all of these and he represents them well with the people who actually make the arguments. And then he actually shoots them down, I think, very thoroughly as well. Um, it is an eight, it's a 700-page book. Again, it's a monster. It's big. But if you like that sort of thing, then go for it. It's a, a great book. Now, he does have a funny view of Matthew 27 and the resurrection of the people in, in Jerusalem. I'm not going to talk about that right now, but we can talk afterwards. But even with that uh, little caveat that he has a strange view on that passage, it's still a good book, especially, again, if you want really big, dense arguments He's going to give it to you. But the question I have is, uh, as I was working through all of this, and, you know, I don't, I don't actually, I don't include this part when I was doing the class in, in Mississippi. I was teaching the class, and, and I don't talk about this, but I think it's important for us to talk about it here. What is the place of evidence? You know, I think, I think we maybe take it for granted that evidence is important, but what's the place of evidence? Where do we put it on the scale? Where do, how do we decide 
how important it is in the face of all these things. You know, we've been talking about matters of faith. We're talking about the Christian faith. And yet we're also seeing that the things that God tells us in Scripture actually happen in the real world. That's the claim of the Christian, that these things are not just a myth that was dreamed up, but that these are actually records of real events that took place. So with that in mind, what is the place of evidence? Well, I want to talk about for the Christian first. Because evidence is going to play a different role for a Christian than it is for somebody who's a skeptic, somebody who's an unbeliever. Uh, For a Christian, the, the evidence is going to play a confirming role. It's going to play a confirming role. Um, what does the evidence do? When we get confronted with evidence, when we're presented with evidence, when we see evidence, it's going to do something where it's going to solidify our own hearts. It's going to remind the Christian of that what God has said in his word lines up with what we observe in reality. So it's going to serve a reminding role. It's going to serve a confirming role. Um, it reminds us that what we know about reality lines up with what God has said in his word. Um, you know, now that I was about to say the name of the town and I just forgot it. Is it Gath? Um, I think the town of Gath was just recently found, if I'm not mistaken. So what did you, what does David do when Saul was pursuing after him? He goes and he hides in the city of Gath. Well, apparently for centuries, there's been no evidence of any city of Gath. They just hadn't known where it was. Well, Goliath's from Gath, right? So Gath ends up being found. They end up finding the historical city of Gath. I think it was last year. It was the year before. Sometimes I mix up my dates and mix up my cities. Um, does that mean that Gath didn't exist until it was found? You know, of course not. All the, the finding of... Here's what it did for me. When I, when I heard that the city of Gath had been discovered, I thought, well, that's to be expected. If they didn't know where Gath was before and they were able to find it later, that doesn't surprise me in the least bit. Now, we know from Scripture that Gath is there. Now, archaeologists have found it and they can see it with their own eyes as well. Uh, I find that to be a confirming thing. I find it to be encouraging when they find that stuff. Uh, Do I now only now believe in King David? Do I only now believe that Goliath was a historical person? No, of course not. It doesn't play that role. You don't base it upon the existence of this historical material. But when you hear evidence, it confirms for you, right? It tells you this thing that you actually already knew. Um, We're reminded that natural revelation of God in time and space and history speaks of the same God and the same world that Scripture speaks of. Scripture doesn't, doesn't talk about existence on another plane than history. All of these things are God's world. It's all true. Uh, They comport with each other. The Bible doesn't inhabit a separate sphere of knowledge from science and history and nature. They all speak of the same world. And so when we hear or when we see evidence, we just go, yeah, that's God's world. Of course, it's going to line up. Of course, it's going to say what it says. Of course, eventually we're going to find these things. You know, but who knows? Maybe the city of Gath doesn't leave a, a scrap of evidence in it, and uh, we never we never dig it up, and we never find it. That doesn't mean it never existed. It just means we didn't find it. Um, there are places in the biblical world that we still haven't found, and I wouldn't be surprised at all if a good archaeologist eventually finds it. And that's gonna that's gonna be sort of the role that evidence plays. Evidence plays a role where it confirms things for the believer. Um, but what about? What about the unbeliever? I'm just going to call it unbeliever. 
for the unbeliever, uh, evidence is going to have a bit of a different role. One of those things that evidence does is it has a persuasive power. I'm going to give you quite a few different things that evidence does. One is that it has a persuasive power. Think of the Apostle Thomas. I'm going to include him as a skeptic because uh, here's what he does, right? He says, I won't believe unless. And then he gives his list of evidences, the things that he needs to see in order for him to be persuaded. And Jesus is willing to entertain that. Even though I don't think that we actually admire the Apostle Thomas for his skepticism. I I don't. I don't find myself impressed because he hears from all of his friends, all of these men that he's known, all of these guys that he knows are trustworthy. He's heard about the resurrection from them. And yet he says, unless I see with my own eyes, unless I touch with my own hands, I'm not going to be persuaded, right? Even though Jesus has been telling him about the resurrection, even though he's heard from the mouth of Jesus that a resurrection is going to happen. And yet here's what Jesus does. He shows up and he humors Thomas. He shows him his hands. He shows him his side. And I think part of what he's showing is that the resurrection of Jesus is not just a matter of faith. It really is a matter of history. It really is something that happened. The the resurrection can stand up to examination. Um, you know, personally, I can say this personally, this is something that, that uh, evidence, this was a role that evidence played in my own life. I was an unbeliever. Uh, I was an atheist. I became persuaded that the existence of God was reasonable. And then I was persuaded by the evidence that, um, that Jesus rose from the dead. God actually used the evidence to persuade. It had a persuasive power for me. Now, um, I'm going to talk more about, at least in my own heart, the role that evidence played. But as an atheist, God used evidence to change my heart. He used the evidence as a means of making me somebody who was different than I was before. Um, Evidence has an illuminating power, not just a persuading power, but an illuminating power, right? It illuminates our own hearts when we see evidence. Um, Personally, I don't mean on its own, you need the Holy Spirit, but personally, God used the evidence to show, as an atheist, my own belief against the the resurrection originated more in my own bias against Christians. I had issues with Christians. I, was, I had a lot of Christians in my life who weren't interested even in really truth. They weren't even the types to really open scripture and read it. They were more like the type of people to go for emotional ecstatic experiences. And so they, would, they didn't care. They didn't seem to care about what was true so much as what they felt. And I had a lot of that in my life. And so as a teenager, I'm kind of reacting to that. And I'm saying, well, Christianity... If it was true, it actually should line up with the facts. And I was disappointed to see that it seemed like these Christians weren't interested in that. And so for me, I was like, Christians are embarrassing. Christians don't care about the truth. And so the resurrection must not be true. And I had my own biases and I had my own issues and my own desire for God not to be real. I didn't want God to be real. I wanted to be able to spend my life sinning and living my own way. So when I saw the evidence... What it did was God used it to make me realize that my belief that Christianity was ahistorical and unscientific, I realized that that was a story I told myself about Christianity so that I could feel superior and so that I could have a reason not to believe. That's me personally. I'm not saying every unbeliever has those same motives. Um, But then what happened? 
The evidence was shown to me, and the evidence actually showed me that my unbelief involved more faith than belief in Jesus would require. Because now I've been presented with the resurrection. Now I've been presented with this account of how the world is the way it is now, and I can't unsee it. Um, uh, resisting God actually required more faith in unseen and hard uh, and hard to prove forces. Um, so I'll give you three examples of the ways that evidence pressed on me. Um, one was I had to account for morality in a universe without God. I had to account for the way that there's morality in this universe that I'm holding other people to, that I'm expecting from others. I'm expecting other people to be good. I'm expecting other people not to mistreat me. Uh, I have moral expectations. And not only that, but I didn't think that those morals should vary from culture to culture. I expect everybody to treat other people justly. I expect everybody to not murder one another. I expect everybody uh, not to be wicked or evil. Even if I didn't know what evil was when I was an atheist, I knew there was a such thing as it. And I knew that I didn't think it was right for somebody to be it. And I had to find a way to affirm morality in a universe without a God. And that required incredible faith. And I didn't have an account for it. I just said, it's just true. And we're just supposed to be good. It's just woven throughout the universe. And I didn't have an account for it. And, and so that's one of the areas where I had to just realize that my faith was harder work than simply giving in and, and becoming a Christian. I was actually doing more work by being an, an unbeliever. Um, the existence of humanity at all was actually a matter of faith. Because I had to believe that humanity climbed from the primordial ooze that I shared a common ancestor with apes. Um, this required a great deal of faith as well, but it was something that I didn't have another alternative. I didn't have another option. And so I, in faith, believe that I had climbed from the primordial ooze and become this upright walking ape who is thinking about God and my own existence and how I'm gonna die someday. Uh, here I am somehow. Um, and then of course, we've already talked about this, the emergence of Christianity from Judaism and the idea that it would happen without a historical resurrection event. Once I was confronted with the evidence, I realized that I would have to concoct such an elaborate story for where Christianity comes from. Eventually, you realize you're going to be putting more work into the faith of not believing than into actually believing. And so for me, here's what happens. You're presented with all of this evidence and the arguments press in on you. And the way that you respond to those arguments ends up illuminating your own heart. That's sort of the point I've been trying to make is that it illuminates something about you. It shows you, hey, you just don't want this to be true. And I didn't want it to be true. And so uh, it, take, it took a great deal of faith in the power of chance and human competence and trickery uh, in order for me to decide that, hey, Christianity can be accounted for uh, on naturalistic terms. Um, so as Christians present evidence, here's what happens. As Christians present evidence, that evidence casts light on the reality that the unbeliever lives by a faith of his own. So I actually think that the evidence is illuminating of the heart of the person that you're talking to because now they have to deal with what you're giving to them and the way they deal with what you give to them is gonna show what's actually going on in here. So my approach to evidence is not just to make one silver bullet argument. I, I'm not persuaded that there is a single silver bullet argument for Christianity that if you just pulled that one sentence out and you said it to somebody, that that would just change their heart and change their mind and make them come around. 
Instead, my approach when it comes to evidence is to give the accumulation of arguments, all of which are reasonable. And then as we pile the evidence on, what you're doing is you're making the other person work. You're making the other person work to resist what's right in front of them. It becomes more uncomfortable for them to resist the conclusions of Christianity, much more difficult to account for the evidence in a naturalistic universe. Suddenly they have to tell quite an elaborate story to explain the facts as you're presenting them to them. Uh, And it becomes a lot of work. So it doesn't change that somebody might double down. It doesn't change that someone might resist the truths of what scripture says. But here's what it does. It creates friction for that person in the story that they're telling themselves about themselves and the world they live in. It becomes very hard to sustain that story in the face of evidence. Um, This person previously thought of themselves as this open-minded person, fair, sophisticated, and and here they are, you're presenting them with evidence. And and it's forcing them into this uncomfortable realization that what they believe about themselves and what they believe about the world is actually rooted in their own preferences. You're showing them that their own presuppositions and their own preferences are actually what have been guiding them this whole time. You're making them realize that through through simply presenting the facts to them. By the force of facts, you're making them come to terms with their own hard attitudes. Um, uh, Evidence can make an unbeliever see that, uh, hey, look, I'm not as fair-minded as I thought. I always thought I was a very open-minded person. And now I realize that I'm really committed to a naturalistic view of the world. And I'll defend it tooth and nail. I'll I'll, I'll defend it as much as I possibly can. Um, Some of the most formative moments for me were when I realized I was making a bad argument. And then I saw my own heart underneath of that bad argument. Why was I making that bad argument? As soon as you see somebody sees that they're making a bad argument, each of these is an opportunity for God to prick the heart. It's an opportunity for God to show you who you really are. And when you're talking to an unbeliever, then there's an opportunity there for God to to do this. And you might say, well, you don't have to make arguments at all, right? You're talking about God. God can just change a person's heart without arguments. Well, you know, the Bible, the Bible does tell us that we are supposed to give a reason for the hope that we have within. So we do have a role to play in confronting other people with these things. Uh, we have a role to play. Uh, we don't play the definitive role. We don't play the, the role of actually changing the heart. But we need to do our very best as Christians to at least present the truth as we're able to. Um, evidence can't change the heart. And in fact, uh, ultimately, apart from the Holy Spirit's work in, in my own heart as a, as a teenager, uh, I never would have come around. I never would have, have uh, accepted the evidence because I always could have thought, you know, it's kind of like when I was, what, what were we saying last week? Uh, that there are still people who say Caesar didn't cross the Rubicon. There are still people who say um, that all these various historical events never happened, that Shakespeare never wrote Hamlet. You know, you can always find somebody who's willing to take the contrarian position And if the Holy Spirit hadn't changed my heart, I would have done the same thing. I would have doubled down. I would have stuck with the arguments that I was using. Uh, I would have just continued to tell myself the narrative that Christians are dumb. Christians don't know anything. uh, Christians are just ignorant. And I would have just kept that up. And I would have continued to tell myself that. And I needed the Holy Spirit to change my heart. Uh, and that's what I, we're actually, what, uh, when we're talking about the place of evidence, what we are talking about is something that can't, still can't shatter the unbeliever's heart. We're not talking about, even, even if somebody was to sit down and read that 700-page Mike Lycona book, 
Even if somebody was to sit down and read that 800-page N.T. Wright book about the resurrection, um, on their own, those things still can't change their hearts. They still can't change their minds. What it can do is create turmoil in their hearts and certainly make it more uncomfortable and unpleasant to be an unbeliever, but it can't change their heart. Um, Because ultimately, God is the one who has to break through. He's the one who has to change the person. But I do know this. God used those things to change my heart. Uh, Does that mean he does that for everybody? No. Does it mean that everybody who has their heart changed, changed, had a heart changed because of the evidence? No. There are plenty of people who were never argued into the kingdom of God. I was one of those weird ones. Uh, I was. I was like when I tell my 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 conversion story to people, it just sounds kind of boring. And oh, you read a book, <laughs> and that's that's what the Lord used for me. He used books. He just used books to change me. Um, but ultimately, it was the Holy Spirit. And I look back on that, and I go, "Wow, look, God was really softening my heart, and He was using these arguments to do precisely that." Um, so I, I guess in summary, if you were going to say, what's the role of evidence for the Christian? It plays a confirming role for the unbeliever. It, it can expose your own heart. It can illuminate your own heart. It can make you see all, this, all the ridiculous stands and contortions that you're willing to make in order to continue to sustain your unbelief. Um, evidence itself is not the goal. The Christian's job is to present God's truth to the best of his ability and leave the other person without excuse. Uh, God's revelation is sufficient to leave somebody without excuse. So all we have to do is tell them the truth and tell them what's happened. Some of us are going to be able to give better arguments than others. Some of us are going to be bigger nerds than others. Some of us are going to be able to simply say, God changed my heart and he made me a different person. And that's the evidence that I have that God is real. Uh, I used to think that was an illegitimate argument. I don't think that is anymore. I think personal experience, the knowledge that God has changed your heart, that he's rescued you, that he saved you from your sin. I think that's sufficient as well. Um, so some, some Christians are going to have, be able to be better equipped than others. But um, at the end of the day, uh, isn't, it, isn't it a blessing to know that God's truth is real, that God's word doesn't speak of a different realm of existence than history or science? Yes, Micah. The only, the only way that um, I think you find in Scripture is the declaration of his word, right? So you've got the – so this is where I think that becomes really important where I was saying before um, some people are going to follow the nerdery way down the rabbit hole and be able to make arguments that others aren't going to be able to make. Every Christian can read God's word and speak God's truth. It doesn't take a special sophisticated knowledge of history to do that. Um, so I don't actually don't want us to, to you guys to listen to this and go, well, I guess I need to read that, uh, that Mike Lycona book or I can't uh, present the gospel to somebody. Um, no, God says in his word that he's going to bless the preaching and the reading of his word. If you have somebody that you really would love to come to Christ, the best thing you can do is actually not to have them read one of those books. Have them come to church and hear the word preached. Jeff. Um, yeah, kind of looking at evidence you know, the other way around. You know, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. And my memory is that 
starting in grade school, I started becoming very discontent with the narrative I was told in the world. By the time I got to high school, I didn't believe it. I thought it was a bunch of hooey. And I met a bunch of Christians who were amazing, <clears throat> very good to each other. Um, and their view of the world made sense. It was wholesome. And I became one of them. And I didn't start really looking for evidence until after I became a Christian. And so I'm saying all this is to say that, you know, you can talk about evidence for or against, but, you know, if someone's heart's been changed by the Spirit, they're going to be very unhappy with the world and what they're being told and what they're being sold. Hmm. It doesn't work. It's garbage. And what Christ offers is eternal life. And to say it's refreshing is a bit of an understatement. Um, so, yeah, I just, and again, I, I was so satisfied with, with coming to know Jesus that it wasn't a couple of years later I started saying, well, I started thinking more critically. And there's lots of evidence. Hmm. Uh, God's wisdom is justified. Mm. Yeah, I think God meets you um, in accordance with maybe like who you are or, or where you're at. Um, if you think of like C.S. Lewis, he was an intellectual, so for him, he kept digging deeper and deeper in, the, in that sort of world to um, ultimately <coughs> discover who God is from an intellectual perspective. But then when the scriptures talk about like you will know them by their fruits and the love for the brethren, like. For some people, when they see how Christians love each other, um, it, up against how the world treats each other, you know that could be the means that God uses. Um, I know for me personally, um, not to get too nerdy, but from a presuppositional standpoint, you know I was I was kind of like, well, how do you account for things like what what you said, morals or ethics? How do you account for the reality that's around us? And then how do you account for like knowing things? How do you know what you know? And um, I, you know, I had some friends who went away to college who came back with all these new fancy arguments about how I was, you know, an idiot for believing what I believe. You know, the Bible talks about dinosaurs. You're going to take that book seriously. Mm. Um, and, and I had no way to intellectually combat their arguments, but I was convinced that it was true. Um, and then it wasn't until I started studying arguments to where um, I could defend the position, but I realized that if my arguments and my defense weren't changing them at all. And so for me, it became more of like, okay, let's not focus on changing others. I want to focus on how it's changing me and, and you know, making me more like Christ. And that's something that I feel like no amount of evidence could, could do because it's the Holy Spirit. Hmm. When I was a kid, when I so when I got when I was converted as a teenager, I took and I wrote down all of the arguments that like convinced me, and I went to my best friend Matt, and I was like, Matt, I'm about to blow your world. <laughs> and Matt was like, What? What is this? I said, I said I'm a Christian, and he goes, Oh no, and actually, he was right. Oh no, <laughs> so I go. Hold on, I'm just going to show you this. And as soon as I show you, it's going to change everything. <laughs> Showed him the same arguments that I had, was presented with. They were simplified versions of things, but they was the same stuff. And he was like, I, I'm glad you're religious now. I'm glad that's really good for you. Hope that works out for you. Yeah. And I was like, I must not have given him exactly what I got. Like, <laughs> I started coming up with all kinds of, it was all intellectual in my mind because I didn't really have theology yet. I thought, oh, I just... I just didn't get the argument right. 
I, I thought I just didn't, I didn't phrase it the right way. And, and I kept like for a long time, I was seriously like, I could convince him and I never did. And I never could, it turns out. I, I didn't have that ability. He could hear the exact same argument I heard and it went right past him and it sounded ridiculous. And so ultimately, it turns out it wasn't the argument, right? It was God, God used the argument, but, you know, that's not the deciding factor. It's the Holy Spirit. But Larry, were you going to say something? Well, yeah, it's just a couple, three things come to mind from, from Scripture as far as having arguments that are laid out. There are examples of it. I mean, you've got Paul at Mars Hill. Well, some of the people wanted to hear more. Other people walked <clears throat> off and, you know, same argument. Yeah. You know, uh, which ties back to Nicodemus. Jesus with Nicodemus, and he's saying, "Well, the you know, the spirit's like the wind; it goes where it wills." And and like you're a teacher of Israel, you don't know these things, right? So he mm-hmm. hit him with you know some of the underlying you know theology. Mm-hmm. And then you got uh, Jesus at the well with, with the Samaritan woman. He he tenderly confronts her with her sin. You know, go bring your husband. Tell your husband, whatever. Uh, I don't have a husband. Mm-hmm. And says, "You're right." You know, and after. So anyway, there's multiple examples, and it's... They'll come different ways. Yeah, and yeah. It's, it's the Spirit of the Lord that works in the person's heart. Sometimes we're planting, sometimes we're watering, cultivating. Occasionally, some reap. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's, it's all the Spirit's work. You just need to be faithful messenger. Yeah, Jeff. I just want to point out the obvious. Here's one of your but I, I think as, a, as the church, and I mean the oldest of the church in America, has done a really poor job of preparing uh, young people for the assault they're going to get on their faith um, when they, once they leave this bubble. Um, and I would just say there is, you know, Jesus is Lord. That needs to be our narrative. He is Lord, and all of his creation belongs to him, and he is a central focus uh, of human history. And what he says is true. And there is uh, a dynamic agency working against his lordship who wants to undermine your faith and has a counter-narrative that's ultimately false and leads to that. Be ready for it. It's coming, and it's coming, and, it's, and, it's, and it never stops, and it's a lie. <coughs> I, I think it's important to tell people that. Be ready for it. These people who, who say these things, you don't, don't, don't hate you. They themselves aren't evil, but they, but, but they don't know the truth. Well, I mean, think about in Proverbs uh, 26, where it says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest he be like him. Mm-hmm. And then it says, but answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Mm-hmm. And so God, you know, he prescribes the means in which you, you are to engage in these conversations. And as Christians, we need to make sure, to your point, that we're equipped and doing it in a way that uh, gives honor to God and the scriptures as authoritative um, and not to... Um, be like the world, um, which is, I think, takes a lot of discernment and you know, um, prayer in order to do that correctly, but yeah. it does set the precedence on how we are going to well, and so I've, I've actually gone on a bit of a journey when it comes to the evidence because I started out with very much like on the uh, just show me the evidence. I just wanted to spend all my time there for a long time as a young Christian because that was how the Lord, that's what the Lord used in my life. And, and I had this mistaken belief that that was normative. Right. And so I'm thinking, oh, everybody needs to get this stuff. No, not actually not everyone needs to. This is Adam. This is your personality. The Lord met you where he needed to or where you needed him to. And uh, but at the same time, I, I eventually ended up going way off in another direction where I was like, you know, evidence is bad. 
We should, any argument that somebody uses is bad. It's probably philosophically flawed. There's probably something wrong with it. So Christians shouldn't use arguments at all. They should only quote scripture. And I had a season where I went through that as well. And now here I am in my old age and I've kind of come out in the middle. I've kind of come out in the middle now where I'm like, but the Lord does use evidence and he does use it to change our hearts. And he does use it to make us realize we've been resisting God's word. And that's kind of where I'm at at this point in my, in my life where I think there's a role for evidence. But if you lean everything on it, you're a fool. Um, and that's because ultimately God uses his word to change your heart. He uses the evidence. I am, this is the way I put it. He uses the evidence to show you you've been resisting his word. Um, he makes it evident to you through the things you've been ignoring that you have been ignorant. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I guess maybe one more thing. Mm-hmm. On the whole experience thing, mm-hmm. you know, I sometimes I feel like we open ourselves up to uh, other faiths can <clears throat> sort of claim, well, I have a religious experience. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we need the evidence component and the reason component mm-hmm. to differentiate ourselves. Was that part of your, you said at one point that you went against the idea of experiences as... No, I think what I, if I'm remembering the, the part of my meandering, uh, <laughs> I, think, I think what I was saying was that it's not illegitimate for somebody to say, the Lord changed my heart. Um, because, because maybe that person doesn't, it's sort of like where we were talking about before, where it's not necessarily an evidence issue for some people. It's a heart issue, and, they, and it's really upfront that that's clear. Uh, some people just have been resisting the things of God their whole life, and then their heart softened, and they were willing to turn to Christ. I think saying, the Lord Jesus changed my heart, I actually think that's a literal evidence that, that they uh, have, that God is real, that Christ is real, that the resurrection is true, and scripture is real. Now, where you're going to run into hairy territory is you're going to have the Mormon who says, I have the burning in the bosom. And then all of a sudden, you're going to have to take a different approach. Uh, to deal with that but it's completely legitimate for somebody to say i once was lost but now i'm found i'm blind but now i see they can point to their sight and that is actually evidence that they have had the blinders removed so now is it going to convince a hardened skeptic no but there's actually no evidence that can convince a truly hardened skeptic um short of the holy spirit changing their hearts so some people are going to be very persuaded by the i once was lost I, now i'm found Argument, And some people are going to need the let's dig down into the history. And I think both of those uh, should be humored. I think both of them should be responded to. Uh, and ultimately, the Holy Spirit's the only one that's going to differentiate how they respond in either case. We can talk more after, but we're out of time. So I'm going to just stop us. We'll pray. And go for the day. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, this is a room full of people. Uh, many of whom, most of whom, all of whom, I trust, have had their hearts changed by your Holy Spirit, Lord. And we all come from different backgrounds. We all have different uh, uh, experiences that we've had. And yet, Lord, your Holy Spirit is the one common factor, uh, the one who came and met us where we were. And you changed our hearts (laughs) and you caused us to love your word and you caused us to believe your word and you changed who we were forever. And so we praise you, O God, we thank you, and we remember that even as we look at these things, ultimately, Lord, it all depends upon you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.